You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. I was in an evangelism experiment when I was in college, and uh, the experiment was that you had to come up or summarize the gospel in one minute. And uh, it was so that you could share it quickly with someone. And I don't remember necessarily how the experiment went, but what I do remember is when the leader got up the next class, uh, he said, all of you left one thing off from your summaries, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not a single one of us had included the resurrection. And the question he said essentially was, Is Jesus still in the tomb? Is it important that he was raised from the dead? Or put it another way, is resurrection essential to the gospel? That's the question Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians 15. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul the Apostles writing to the Corinthians. And we're going to take time over the next four weeks as we approach Good Friday and Easter looking at this text. How essential is it that Christ rose from the dead? Paul is going to argue that the bodily resurrection of Christ, as N.T. Wright says, is the central nerve of Christian living. And without the resurrection, the central nerve would be cut. In fact, without it, everything else falls apart. Have you ever played the game Jenga? Uh, You have, you know, you take blocks out and you move them to the top. And as you move to the top, the tower uh, loses stability as far as you go. Well, the resurrection in the gospel Jenga is that block that you touch and you realize, whoops, Ah, that's a very stable, that's going to ruin the whole stability of the Jenga. You pull out the resurrection block and the whole Jenga falls down. 1 Corinthians 15 is arguably the central chapter that deals with the bodily resurrection of believers and of Christ. And our idea with this study called Risen is that the resurrection of Jesus is the greatest event in the history of the world, and it shapes everything that we do together as a church. It is, in a word that we have heard often this year, essential. Why? Well, look down at verse 13. You're going to see it in Paul's logic. Verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 15. He says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. It's clear from the context that the Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians, had heard that there were some in the church who were struggling with this idea that Christians will be bodily raised. Look down at verse 12, the previous verse. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, we don't really know what they were saying or what their argument was or why they were doing this, but we can maybe understand the attraction because it certainly happens in our day where people say, you know, I love the teachings of Jesus and morality. 
Uh, but these miracles and that resurrection stuff, I really don't want anything to do with that. And so you can understand, if you're in the first century, the appeal of, you know, telling the story in the evangelism class without including the resurrection. Paul, however, responds to those who deny the resurrection with 58 glorious verses. In the first half, he gives the certainty of bodily resurrection. In the second half, he gives the nature of the bodily resurrection. So when we talk about resurrection, sometimes in our mind, we think through movies where they're like a ghost of some sort. Um, well, that's not what Paul has in mind. He's talking about a bodily resurrection, that we will have a new imperishable body that is not unlike the body that we have right now. So believing in the resurrection matters. In fact, the gospel without the resurrection, we're going to see, proves worthless. You know, I'm currently in the process of reading through the Agatha Christ, all of Agatha Christie's mystery novels, so I'm in the Miss Marple series. And then I also really enjoy a BBC mystery series called Foil's War. Now, if I picked up, you know, Agatha Christie, or I was watching Foil's War, and I'm getting to the very end of the book when they're going to reveal the murderer, and suddenly the book ends, you know, the show credits roll, I would be pretty upset. I don't know about you, but that would be really upsetting because it proved that reading that book was totally pointless. What's the point of reading a book if they don't, a mystery book, if they don't solve the murder? That's a little bit like how the gospel is if we leave off the resurrection. So we want to meet in this study the risen king. Now, Paul's launch pad for all the arguments we're going to see are the verses that we're going to study this morning. That's verses 1 through 11, where he grounds what he's going to say in the gospel. And it's not a version of the gospel. It's the shared and common gospel of Jesus Christ that was common to Peter and to all the apostles and has now come to us. The gospel we hold some 2,000 years later. It is the gospel to which we turn our attention to this morning. And I think the target for Paul is the tendency of the church in all ages, at all times, in all places, to lose sight of the gospel, to forget the gospel, to be ashamed of the gospel, to abandon the gospel, to assume the gospel. Or maybe it's just simple as losing your grip on the gospel. And so Paul is going to remind believers at Corinth to hold fast to the gospel that he preached. And that's the call for us too. You know, Redeemer, we are not above this temptation. It's not as though our church, we have, we're the only ones holding on to the gospel and we'll never let go. There is a temptation for us to assume and to lose the gospel. And so Paul reminds us, and I remind us this morning, to hold fast to the gospel. Hold fast to the gospel. How? I think Paul gives us two ways in this text to hold fast to the gospel in these 11 verses. Number one, hold fast to the gospel by remembering the gospel's effects. By remembering the gospel's effects. And number two, hold fast to the gospel by recovering the gospel's essentials. Recovering the gospel's essentials. And that's what I want you to see from these 11 verses. So let's begin by just reading them together. 
Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so we believed. You believed. So number one, we hold fast to the gospel by remembering the gospel's effects. So in rapid succession, Paul lists three effects or results that we have as brothers and sisters in the gospel. The reality of being in the gospel has three aspects, the past reality, the present reality, and the future reality. So let's start with the past. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. Now Paul is talking to believers, but if you're here and you're not a Christian, there's a lot that he has to say for you, so I encourage you to listen as well. Now, this is not new knowledge for the Corinthians. They had heard it before. It's something Paul received and he passed on to them. He says in Galatians 1.11, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. That is, he didn't invent it. It was divinely received. So Paul preached it to them and they accepted it, and it did a transforming work in their hearts. So Paul feels compelled to go over it one more time. And it's like that, I don't know how many times I heard that as a kid, if I have to tell you one more time. Paul here is the reminding parent. He's reminding them what he's already told them. And it's that they received the gospel. So think of it in terms of a, a wedding day to the marriage. I married Krista on July 25th, 2015. That is when we received each other in marriage. Or I received Christ when I was 13. I turned from my sins and trusted the Savior. And that's when I first believed the gospel. I first repented of my sins and turned to Christ. Now, you don't have to necessarily remember that day that you first turned, but you know that there was a day when you first received the good news. Paul says in Ephesians 1.13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you received, you were sealed with the promise Holy Spirit. So the gospel is the message of salvation, and there was a time that the Corinthians received this message. So there's the past, and then we have the present reality. Paul says, the gospel in which you stand, there in the middle of verse 1. So as Tim Keller famously put it, the gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian life. It is the A to Z. 
We do not move on from the gospel to something else. Because the picture here of standing as the picture of abiding results or lasting results, results that come from the past into the present. Much again like marriage, the wedding is a past event that proves or proves a present state. That is, right now, I am married. So too with the gospel, I received Christ, but now I'm standing positionally in Christ. I am a Christian who is continuing to experience the transforming and forgiving grace of Jesus Christ, purchased for me on the cross in the past. In other words, you are and will forever be under the influence of the gospel if you're a Christian. So what is our temptation here? Well, it's to let unbelief or distraction move us away from the solid foundation of the gospel. Or are you resting in all that Christ is and has purchased for you today? Are you resting in that today? You know, it was a year ago this week when we stopped gathering for a time and when kind of everything came to a halt in our society. And we learned that some things that we rely on for stability can be very quickly taken away from us. Yet the gospel realities for a believer never will crumble. We stand in the gospel, forgiven, loved, free from condemnation, redeemed, adopted, and secure. And that is our present reality in Christ. And that's true for those Corinthian believers, that God lavished upon them grace, and he also lavishes his grace on us. So that's the middle portion, present. And then now he moves on to the future, so there's a past reality, a present reality, and a future. And he says, the gospel by which you are being saved, beginning of verse 2. So your salvation from death, sin, and hell comes by means of the gospel. You are saved and you are being saved. Paul is emphasizing that we are not only redeemed, but our salvation will not be completed in this life. And salvation is completely, totally a work of God. And that's why Paul uses the passive word, you are being saved. So here he's re referencing glorification. And it's what waits for us at the end of our Christian life. As Paul puts it in Romans 8, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So the gospel, there is a future hope built into the gospel. That it's not just a gospel for now, it's a gospel for the future. And in marriage, this would be the till death do us part. Or think of it in terms of a ship that's sinking, but rescue is on the way. Christ promises to bring safety, to finally bring us to glorification. He promised to present us holy and blameless before God. So do you see the effects of the gospel here in these three realities? Paul is reminding us that these are true for the believer. It's like a journey on a plane where you step onto the plane, you're on the plane, and you're going towards your destination. At no point, at no point do we cease to live our Christian lives apart from the gospel. That's his point. You don't graduate from gospel class. 
And then he adds, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Do you see that at the end of verse 2? So Paul includes a condition. But you'll notice that Paul assumes this condition to be true. You know, he's already told us what we have in the gospel, what effects the gospel has on us. That is the specific message you need to hold fast to the gospel he preached. He's not saying believers can go in and out of salvation, not at all. The question is whether saving faith, not whether saving faith is permanent. The question is whether or not someone believed or believed in vain. Or as one pastor put it, quote, the doubt is not whether saving faith saves, but whether one actually has saving faith. In the context, this verse fits with Paul's argument. If the resurrection is essential to the gospel, and we'll see that it is in the future weeks, then to deny the resurrection is to believe in vain, to believe to no purpose. Why believe the gospel if death is the end? If the dead are not raised, Paul says, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. If there is no bodily resurrection, then believing has no power. It is fruitless. To disbelieve in the bodily resurrection is to not fully believe the message that Paul preached. As one early church father said, Paul is showing the Corinthians that if they have been led away from his teaching, especially the belief in the resurrection of the dead, on which it's based, they will lose everything they have believed. It's like Paul saying, if you, if you don't hold fast to the gospel I preach to you, I really wonder what, if you're holding on to the gospel at all. If you turn from this gospel, what gospel do you have left? I remember running a play in high school football where we're all lined up, snap count uh, was set, and the, the center forgot the snap count, um, which if you know football, that's important that he remembers it. <laughs> Um, and so the whole team jumps into the play, um, and of course they throw a flag as the center is still sitting with the ball at the line. Um, my question is, what good is it if the receiver in that play ran a perfect route, like just fantastic? What good is it if the center still has the ball and the quarterback never received it? It's to no purpose. That's what he's saying. The gospel without the resurrection is in vain. It's no purpose without the resurrection. And it's here that actually we find faith-clarifying healing. Right at the beginning of this chapter, to know Christ is to have a relationship with a person. So that every Sunday we remind ourselves of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus and knowing him in the power of his resurrection and becoming like him in his death. So if you've lost the wonder of the gospel, it starts here with what the gospel has done in your life, what it did, what it's doing, and what it's going to do in your life. That's where it starts. We see Christ for all he is, and we hold fast to the one who is holding fast to us. And that's where Paul begins by number one, hold fast by recovering the gospel effects. 
Then he goes on to number two. Hold fast by recovering the gospel essentials. Remembering the gospel effects, recovering the gospel essentials. For I delivered to you, verse 3, as of first importance what I also received. That is, Paul passed on the gospel. In fact, Acts 18 records how Paul preached this gospel to the Corinthians. It says, and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul, hearing Paul believed and were baptized. So they, what they believed was of first importance, meaning it's the highest importance. Then Paul goes to give us here the central facts of the gospel, the irreducible minimum. You have to hold these to be considered a, to hold to be considered to have whole, held to the gospel. So you can disagree with a lot of things, but you can't disagree. You can't miss on these things, for to miss them is to miss Christianity entirely. And we can summarize it in four words. So you have the gospel in four words. You know, we do a lot of baptism testimonies. If I said, you know, explain the gospel, and someone said, I'll explain it in four words, that would be a great answer. So these, if you're looking to be baptized, here's your uh, pre, you know, your little study, ex- study exam. Uh, that's not the word I'm looking for. Study guide. Um, the gospel in four words, died, buried, raised, appeared. So Christ died, he was buried, he was raised, and he appeared. First, Christ died. Look at it there. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. It is a historical fact that Jesus Christ died. Now, Paul draws attention to his messianic title here by using Christ. That is, that he was foretold in the Old Testament as the savior of his people. And he died a horrible death on the cross, a crucifixion. He died in his 30s, rejected by his own people, What many saw as a failure, in fact, many of his disciples didn't even expect a resurrection. Yet it was his death that he accomplished what he came to do. It's interesting what we don't find here. We find no mention of Christ's example or his teaching. And it's significant. I mean, we're spending a lot of time examining the teachings of Christ. So we're not saying that the teachings of Christ are unimportant. But rather, it is Uh, Rather, the emphasis of Christ's followers in the first century was always on the death and resurrection of Jesus. The gospel is not primarily about what Christ taught. It is about what Christ did. As one theologian put it, Christ did not come to preach the gospel, but that there might be a gospel to preach. Now compare him to the greatest religious leaders to ever live. There is no one like Jesus. Muhammad, Confucius, Buddha, these leaders lived into old age, but not so with Christ. He predicted his own death in Mark 8.31. He knew that he would be remembered by his death. Take this bread and this wine and do this in remembrance of me. He knew that the central thing that that we would remember about him is his death. And that every baptism would be a rehearsal of the thing to which he came to accomplish. And that the primary symbol of Christianity would be the cross. But it's more than just the fact that he died. Did you see that? It's also why did he come to die. 
and three great words for our sins. The death of Christ was an atonement, an atonement for sin. That it's, it's the only way in which God can forgive sins. Paul is going to touch on this later when he says, if Christ is not raised, then we are still in our sins. The death of Jesus is an atonement. So God, holy and majestic, totally separate from sin. And all of us deep down know that we are sinners and that the world is broken. And our sins are not just breaking God's law, which they are, but a willful rebellion against this holy God. And it leaves us with a dilemma. We're made for God, but God is holy and we are sinners and we cannot have a relationship with him. The cross, Paul says, when Jesus died, he bore the judgment we deserve in order to bring about the forgiveness that we do not deserve. The penalty of sin was borne by Christ, uh, by God in Christ. And on the cross, divine justice and love meet and are reconciled. Or as John Stott amazingly puts it, the wages of sin is death. That is, they separate us from God. Normally, the sin and the death are ours. We sin and we die. But when the apostles are writing about the cross, they make the amazing statement that Christ died for our sins. That is, the sin was ours, but now the death or alienation from God, which is the penalty for sin, was his. That is what is meant by a substitutionary atonement. He took our place, bore our sin, paid our debt, and died our death. Even as we heard in the Philippians reading, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Why would he do this? Well, Paul says in Romans, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And his death and resurrection there were in accordance with the scriptures. And I think what's meant by that is that the whole tenor and message of the Old Testament as you read it points to this moment, this message. The entire biblical narrative reaches its climax here with the cross and the resurrection and the rescue from death and forgiveness of sins. It's according to the whole scriptures. Christ died for your sins. If you feel the weight of your sins this morning, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the first word. He died. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Now, number two, buried. Christ was buried. Perhaps you've wondered, like I did this week, why Paul includes it here and why all the creeds include it, um, where the Apostles' Creed says, was crucified, died, and was buried. Why include the fact that Jesus was buried? Perhaps you've considered this. Well, it shows us first that Jesus was really dead. The body was set in a tomb. It could have been found. He was truly dead. He was not like uh, Wesley in Princess Bride. Do you remember that movie where he was mostly dead? Um, Jesus was dead, dead. He died a physical, actual death. His heart stopped. This serves to con confirm that Christ died a genuine human death and points us once more to the scripture for proof. According to the New Testament, Joseph, a rich man from Arimathea, asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. 
Then he and Nicodemus from John 3 took Christ's body, wrapped it in a linen shroud with spices, some 50 pounds, and laid it in a tomb cut in stone, as was the burial custom of the Jews at that time. The fact that Jesus was buried is important, second, because of the empty tomb. What's the first thing that tips Mary off and all the disciples that something amazing had happened? It was the empty tomb. The fact that Jesus was buried makes it highly unlikely that the empty tomb can just be explained away. It's what a secular person has to do, and I sometimes wonder how they do this. The tomb was secured by a large flat stone slotted in a groove at the entrance. It would have required several men to move it away. Pilate had the tomb sealed and guarded to prevent any attempt to remove the body and claim resurrection. Yet when the resurrection story emerges, Pilate and the religious leaders could have easily quelled this new religion by doing one thing, bringing out the body of Jesus. Presenting the body of Jesus, but that's impossible. That's impossible. Why? Because of the third word, raised. So buried, died, raised. Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The verb he was raised is actually surprising in the original. Um, it does not match all the other tenses. It doesn't match died, buried, or appeared. And the verb carries the idea of a present state caused by a past action, meaning Christ was raised and remains alive. So it's an ongoing result from this one-off event. The emphasis is on the fact that Jesus is alive. Jesus was raised to be the risen king forever. And the passive applies that God the Father was the one who raised Christ from the dead. And it was on the third day, Sunday morning. And again, it was in accordance with the scripture. So the whole sweep of the scripture narrative points to the fulfillment of this day when Christ Raised from the, was raised from the dead. The resurrection is really the stamp of approval. You know those big stamps say approval? It validated everything. Everything that Christ said and did was validated on Sunday morning. The question I've been asking myself and I hope to ask you here is have we wrestled with the reality that Jesus was raised from the dead? Because if Jesus is alive, it really truly changes everything. It means it's possible to have peace with God. It means the grave is defeated, that truth exists, that everything Jesus said is true. Christ sits at his right, the right hand of the Father, interceding for us this moment as our advocate. And it means that he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. There's meaning to this life. If you feel like, man, I've lost all meaning to this life, the resurrection is where you should turn this morning. And it means that his kingdom will never end. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything, and there's no denying it. If you're a thinking person here this morning, there's no denying that Jesus was raised from the dead. My question for believers especially is, does the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead make any difference in your life, functionally? Does the empty tomb have anything to say about our anxiety, our fears, our parenting, our careers? Or think of it this way. If an archaeologist claimed in, in uh, Israel to have found the bones of Jesus, 
would it change anything about your life? The Apostle Paul says it should. So that's the third word, he was raised. Fourth, he appeared. Christ appeared. Now, he gives a list here of individuals that he appeared to, and we read it just a moment ago. And the sequence, uh, you see it there, it starts with Peter, then the 12, then the 500 brothers at one time, um, and then to James, and then to the apostles broadly, and then to Paul. His purpose in doing this is to highlight, again, the bodily resurrection of Christ. That the early disciples met the risen Christ. They actually saw him. They walked with him. They talked with him. They even ate with him. He appeared to Cephas. That we have a reference of that in Luke 24, 34. Then Christ appears to the disciples, minus Judas and Thomas. So I think that's probably a reference just to the remaining disciples. And then we find, and we find that in John 20. Then Christ appears to 500 at once. So you look around this room. Christ appeared to, to, to 500 people, more than what's in these two rooms together. Some of whom are still alive. You know, sleep is a common way in the first century to describe death. And I actually think it's a subtle uh, jab at those who deny the resurrection. They're not, they're not dead, they're asleep. Um, and, but he says there are some still alive. So it's as if to say, like, you want proof of the resurrection, go talk. Go talk to these brothers who are still alive. The majority of them are alive. And then he appeared to James, although we don't necessarily have that recorded in the Bible. It makes sense, seeing how he's at this point the leader in the church of Jerusalem. So it makes, point, makes sense that Christ would appear to his half-brother, James. What's the significance? Well, the evidence is overwhelming again that Jesus rose from the dead. You have to explain much of it away. Even atheist Gerd Ludman admits this. He says, quote, It may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Now, he explains it away with a mass hallucination, but I find that much more implausible than Jesus actually rising from the dead and meeting these people. I love how Cyril of Jerusalem, an early church father, puts it. You can see Paul's argument. If you, believe one, if you disbelieve one witness, you have the 12. If you disbelieve the 12, you have the 500. If you disbelieve them, you have Jesus' brother, a leader in Jerusalem. If you disbelieve you, uh, that, you have me, one who was an enemy of the gospel, a persecutor turned preacher. That leads to Paul. Paul says, last of all. It means, I think, that it was the, he was the last one chronologically. So this isn't something, seeing visions of Christ isn't something that we should expect as regular in our Christian lives. When Jesus ascended into heaven, those visions ended, but with the exception of Paul, the last one. And he hints at that when he says, one untimely born. Look at verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. I mean, he was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent, opponent, hunted down Christians. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Every once in a while, you hear a Christian or an unbeliever say, you don't know what I've done. Christ can't save me. Paul killed Christians. And still the grace of God was extended to him. There is grace for you. 
And his grace towards me, he says, he continues verse 10, was not in vain. That is, look what's happening through the grace of God that's been extended to me. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. That's a sermon all in and of itself. And then he says, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. What's incredible here in verse 11 is that we have a common gospel. It's the same gospel and it's gospel in four words. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised and he appeared. On the matter of the resurrection, we're all agreed, Paul says. It's not as though this is a different version of the gospel. Christ is alive. So hold fast to the gospel. By remembering its effects and recovering its essentials. This, Paul says, is the irreducible minimum of the gospel. The gospel essentials. This is the good news that we've received. If you've not heard of it this morning, we want you to hear it too. It's the best news in the world that God in Christ came down to earth and that he died on the cross for our sins. To remove the great barrier between us and God so that we can have life with him. He truly died. He was truly raised so that he is alive forevermore and we can know that all that he said is true. And the call for everyone everywhere is to repent, to turn from their sins and believe this gospel. Are you believing this gospel this morning? If you're here and you have not yet believed in Christ, I encourage you to receive this message today. Believe it. Cry out to God right now. Cry out and say, Lord, save me. For you, for Christ came to die for sinners, and I am a sinner. Christ died for me. Run to God with this on your tongue. Do not trust in your own feelings. Just run to the Savior, the one who died, was buried, and rose again. Believe in this truth this morning, and you will be saved. Trust the mercy of the Savior. It's so simple, and yet Christians myself included, we can easily get bored or ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A sermon like this can often feel like we've heard it before. You know, when you have hunting dogs, um, you have to train them to get used to gunfire. So trainers have all sorts of ways to do that, but mostly it's when they're very little they go ahead and shoot off blanks around the dog so the dog gets used to gunshot. Or they put the dog near something that they like, like food, and fire off a few rounds. So that they grow familiar with the gunshot and they begin to take it for granted. They don't realize the sound and the power of the gun anymore. It's a little picture of how it can be for us. We've heard the gospel again and again and again, and we forget its power. And we take it for granted, and we lose our grip on it. Paul says, hold fast to the gospel. Let's pray.